0: This message is brought to you by Living Faith Church. You can find us on the web at livingbyfaith.com. I have had a blast being with you this weekend, and it's been, uh, we had a great time. And and I I wanna say and reiterate too as well, that if you were not in this uh, seminar, please go back and watch the videos. I believe it's some game-changing stuff for this house as well as many people. We had a lot of, some folks traveled, as a matter of fact, I think your pastor's still here this morning, just Jesse, Seth, over the Seth Fleming came all the way from southern West Virginia to be with us in the seminar, and we appreciate him taking Sunday even and staying over to be with us this morning, but I believe some things were said in this seminar that, how, how many of you were here, let me just raise your hands, and did, did you learn anything? Hallelujah, it, it, and you know what was amazing to me is nobody threw tomatoes at me, it was a good deal, Hallelujah. Uh, This morning we're going to follow that theme, and some of you may be completely lost in what I'm going to say because I'm going to be a little deeper than I normally am on a Sunday morning because this is actually the fourth uh, session to the seminar that we did on last day's. And I believe it was some absolutely revolutionary things. I've been teaching this subject now for a number of years. I teach it in in a couple of different, even uh, Bible schools or colleges and some second year students. I've met with some heads of denominations recently, uh, taking a look at some of the ways that we're looking at this. That's not to give me legitimacy, it's just to say that I promise you that we've thought through a lot of the things that we've shared with you. I'm going to start Second 2 Peter today, but let me just review just a little bit because I know there's quite a few of you that were not here. So if you kind of hear some things this morning, you say, well, I don't really understand a lot of that. Please, please, please go back and watch the other three videos because we, we did Q&A, we did a lot of stuff in teaching on this. But on Friday night, I introduced this by showing you a whole lot of time texts. I'm going to read 2 Peter. It's going to be my first scripture this morning, chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse number 1 through 13, we're going to look at. But while you're turning there before we read this, let me just reiterate a few thoughts. We started out on Friday night by saying in Hebrews 1, God who at sundry times, in times past, spoke to us in through the, and by the prophets, hath Everybody say hath. Touch your neighbor say that's not something he's going to do. That's something he's already done. Who hath, he says, God, who hath in these last days spoken to us about the Son. The Apostle Paul was telling Hebrews, that's the context of that writing, that, they were, that he believed they were living in the last days of something. God hath in these last days. We usually, whatever our mindset is about last days, grab it and go, oh, he's talking about 2022. He wasn't writing to you. He was writing to Hebrews. How do I know that? It's the title of the book. If I said, dear (laughs) Gavin, the first thing this thing's going to do is have some relevance to him. And I said to Gavin, God has in these last days, I mean, I'm talking to him, relevant to him. And so we, we talked about how, well, Paul maybe Paul just thought he was living in the last days because he was beat a lot, let down over baskets, walls and baskets, shipwrecked, snake bitten, and perils among the sea. Maybe he just thought he was living in the last days. So we checked to see if we could find any more apostolic witnesses that would say the same thing. And then we found the apostle Peter stand up in Acts chapter 2. He said, when the Holy Ghost fell, he said, this is that, that was spoken by the prophet Joel, that in the last days. So Peter called his day the last days. Well, thank you for that thunderous Amen. Then the Apostle John in 1 John says, little children, we know that it is the last time because Antichrist is already on the scene. And I said that was before Osama, Obama, Chelsea's mama, or the last Trump. Well, thank you. Hallelujah. We showed you different words in the Greek that were what shall be the sign of your coming and the end of the world. And what we saw is that the word world in the original King James is a mistranslation of the Greek word eon. And he wasn't talking about the end of the world as in a global catastrophe. He was talking about the end of an age, an end of an eon. That's a game changer. Hebrews 9 uses the same word, says, Once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. I mean, that's not something he's going to do, that's something he did in the end of the world. But once again, that Greek word for world there is not global, it is the end, it's not cosmic, it is the Greek word for age. How I know? Mean, once in the end of the age he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And what I said to to many of you, and I know this is going to be shocking to some of who were not here, but what I said to many of you uh, that were in this conference is that a whole lot of stuff that we believed about the last days are actually past days. That would be incredibly good news, wouldn't it? And what we shared with you is probably a lot of stuff you've been taught about last days is right. You just had the end at the wrong spot. And what we showed you was that the end is not cosmic, it's covenantal. In other words, the end that he's talking about that we're going to talk about here this morning in the book of Peter is not the end of the world because that's a real conflict with Ephesians that uses the correct word where Ephesians says, to him be glory in the churches throughout all generations. World without end. Now, see, that would see, that would kind of get exciting to me, even if I kind of was a doomsday guy. I would say, well, wait a minute, maybe God has a plan and a purpose for this planet. And maybe what Jesus preached was really true, that the kingdom is like leaven, and it will continue to grow until it infects the whole lump. Maybe what Isaiah prophesied about will come to pass, that as truly as I live, saith God, all the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of of the Lord. Maybe what he said concerning Jesus, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, his name shall be called the Wonderful, the Counselor, the Mighty God, the Prince of Peace, the Everlasting Father, and of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Wouldn't that be good news if I said to you, we win. Come on, come on. The fight is fixed. I don't know why that would make anybody upset, you know, when you start talking, but what happens is, is our worldviews are shaped by a lot of stuff that we have been taught eschatologically that really is only a couple hundred years old, and actually much of our dispensational end-time theologies were started. If you go back and study it and just look at it in Wikipedia, they were started during the time of Reformation to stop the Reformation. They came up with a futuristic scheme of, of interpretation to put something out in the distance because they were declaring at that time when the, the, the Reformation was going on that oh, I'm probably getting too deep here for Sunday morning. If you get upset, I'll be gone this afternoon. <laughs> you go back to thinking however you want to. But I think it's good to make people think. Amen. I mean, I'm not even, you know, I I started this thing. I said, I'm not a fighter. You can think whatever you want to. I'll share my thoughts and you can have some of your own. It's okay with me. Hallelujah. But what I, you know, it was started by a Jesuit priest by the name of Francisco Ribera, who was uh, under command by the Pope to stop, to come up with a futuristic scheme of interpretation to take the heat at that time off the Catholic Church because Luther was declaring that the Pope was Antichrist and that that, that great Babylon was the Church of, of Rome. I don't I don't agree with that, but what that's what was being preached at that time, so that's why they came up with a futuristic scheme of interpretation. And then a woman by the name of Margaret, Mac, Margaret Macdonald had a vision of Jesus coming in the clouds and the church flying through the air, and then uh, Larkin, Schofield, Dake, all these guys came up, not uh, all these charts, and first thing you know, uh, it became pulp culture, and nobody ever questioned whether that was the original thought that the church taught. If you go back to the Nicene Fathers, the early fathers, they didn't teach any of that. They taught a dominion theology, a victorious eschatology. that says we win. The kingdoms of the earth will become the kingdoms of our God and of His Christ. I mean, no, God's project is not failure. His project is about bringing new creation, and creating a brand new world. Somebody help me a little bit here this morning. It's about bringing into our world. And see, I think we're so messed up in the American church and all over the world because what we have taught primarily here's the basic mindset of most Christians. Oh, I'm getting nervous this morning. I feel like a cat on a hot tin roof here this morning. Here's our basic mindset. Just give me the basic rules for what it takes to get to heaven and miss hell. That's what the basic concept of the most American Christianity is, or most Christianity. And that's so far from the fullness of the gospel, because what God's dimension, or what God's intention is, is not to just get me from here to there. But it's to get what's happening there to operate here your kingdom come, your will be done in earth. And as our sister said, I I was so blessed even by how you took the offering because you were talking about this, that our giving is not, come on, because we're trying to pay off some debt, but we want to see what we can do to partner with God to bring about His kingdom not over there somewhere, but here. And when Jesus preached the kingdom, He didn't preach it like some other world stuff. He preached it like this world. What we need more than anything else is not an escape hatch. We need heaven to start to invade the earth, and we need that to happen through people that are going to be yielded to vessels of the kingdom of God and realize we've been called to the kingdom for just such a time as this, that maybe God wants to raise up some Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to stand in the gap in the middle of a whole lot of stuff, even in the middle of chaos, and there are men like Ezra, Nehemiah, who in the middle of chaos would see a move of God that would say, let us arise and build instead of just standing back here crying, woe is me and the sky is falling. I don't know why it would offend people if I preach a great big God and a wee little defeated devil. And the bigger I preach God, it seems like the matter people get. But as we we gave Him glory this morning, I believe He's a whole lot bigger than people think He is. We've been taught in Word of Faith the authority of the believer and the dominion theology, except we think that means so we could get a bigger car and a nicer house. And I'm not opposed to the blessing of the Lord, but I think the blessing of the Lord makes a man rich and adds with it no sorrows. And if you'll seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, then all this other stuff is added to you. But then he gives you the power to get wealth so that the covenant can be established in the earth. Maybe some of the dreams you've had that you thought, you know, I said, well, I I, I try not to be too controversial here this morning. But, you know, sometimes I challenge pastors, you know, that one minute they're talking about, Jesus just, uh, God spoke to me to build this $2 million, $10 million building. We got a 10-year project, and God spoke to me, we're going to do this. And then they get up the pulpit and say, you know what, Jesus could come for the night's over. And I'm like, he either told you to build a building or he didn't. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Let me behave a little bit here this morning. You need to watch the videos. Because just to make it blunt this morning, the last days that the Bible talks about is not the last days of a cosmic collapse or a global catastrophe. It is the last days of the old covenant and what was about to pass away and pass off of the scene where these apostles and men stood here, and all of these apostles, including Jesus, who prophesied the Matthew 24 uh, text where it says, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? He's standing there pointing at the beautiful buildings of the temple, and he's talking about the demise of the old covenant and the passing away of that old dimension of the Mosaic covenant, and he stands there and tells them that all of this stuff will come to pass before the generation standing He said, this generation right here, not out in 2022, will not pass away until everything I told you comes to pass. But what we do is grab that out of context, though it's somewhere out in our world. And the first time we see any one of those things in USA Today or CNN, we're like, this is the end. This is the big one, Myrtle. Except that I am 65 years old. And ever since I was this high, I can tell you I have survived at least 12 into the world scenarios. And after a little while, after reading all the books and studying all the charts and, and, and the hundred and fiftieth time, they said, Whoops saith the Lord, we were wrong." That when you prayed through, like you could change God's mind. Maybe there's another way to look at this. And maybe it's victorious. Just consider the possibility that it may not fall apart. Just consider the possibility that God might be as big as he says he is. I said, somebody challenged me, said, well, you know, brother, how's what if you're wrong? I said, if I'm wrong, Jesus splits the eastern sky this afternoon, I'm with you. I'm out of here. Hallelujah. Because my salvation is not predicated upon whether or not how I believe in times. But if I'm wrong and I stand before God this afternoon and we fly out of here and I stand before him, I'm going to say, sorry, I preached you so big. (laughs) <laughs> come on, somebody! How I many? Sometimes we 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 have we, we we've not even looked at the authority of the believer to the point where we realize that the authority of the believer is the moment something hits, we don't know what we're supposed to do. See, the kingdom of God is something that I believe is very practical in the lives of people right now. The kingdom of God operates in my home, it operates in my business, it operates in my life, it operates with how I treat people. Everything about the kingdom of God. Come on, is a. Uh, is based upon me dreaming with God and realizing he's Abba. He's not just an austere man on a Victorian chair with a club in his hand ready to kill everybody. He's got a whole family of sons and daughters of God that he's put in the earth with a mission to bring about and participate with him in his new creation project. In The book of Revelation, he declares, Behold, I am making all things new. Write these words down because they are true and they are faithful. And so we showed you a lot of those kind of stuff, so I'm not going to review much more than that this morning. I will open now with that thought to Second Peter chapter 1, because I want to talk about the new heaven and new earth a little bit this morning. The second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you. This is Second Peter chapter 3, verse 1. In both which I stir up your minds by way of remembrance, that you might be mindful of the words which were spoken before of the holy prophets, and of the commandment of us, the apostles, of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lust, and saying, Where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. But the heavens and earth which are now by the same word are kept in store, reserved under fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, word not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance." But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, in the, which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise. The elements will melt with fervent heat, and the earth and also the works that are therein will be burned up, seeing then that these things shall be dissolved. Seeing that you see these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be, in all holy conversation and Godliness looking for and hastening to the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to His promise, Look for new heaven and new earth. Now, let me just say again the context of this. uh, this, uh, I'm going to break this down. I apologize if you have not been in here to understand some of the context of what I'm saying. But I've tried to establish just a few moments ago that the biblical last days were not talking about the end of this age. They were talking about the end of that age. Peter is writing his epistle to people who are 30-some years into the new covenant. They are very shortly about to see the destruction of of Jerusalem, the Romans are about to circle, Within three and a half years, I think, of the writing of the book of Peter, they will find that they were encompassed with armies because Jesus prophesied and said, "Here's the sign: when you see Jerusalem encompassed with armies, you're going to know that it's near, that the, that the desolation is near, even at the door." And so, when they saw when the, those that were alive and heard these apostles warning them concerning these things, because Jesus Himself set the time text. When they ask him, when will these things be? His answer to them is in Matthew 24, verse 34. He said, this generation will not pass away until everything I told you comes to pass. I showed you on a chart, the time chart uh, earlier in this seminar, how that Jesus gave that prophecy in 30 AD, and one generation, 40 years later, everything he prophesied came to pass, including war, famine, or tribulation, such as was not since the world began, that he said, even when he said, where, Lord, he said, wherever the carcass is, that's where the vultures have gathered together, and it never dawns on us that the vulture was the insignia on the Roman banner when they seized the city of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem was uh, trampled underfoot for 42 months by the Roman armies, and everything that was there was literally burnt to the ground. They were literally coming to the end of that, and so the last days that Jesus had prophesied about was the last days of the Old Covenant, and here's Peter coming back to reiterate some of that, and he's saying to them, listen, he said, uh, there's been... Let me say it like this. He's addressing people who have realized that the covenant. How many know that Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets? You know, I feel almost like overwhelmed when I start to teach because it's sad to me that we're 2,022 years into the new. Well, somewhere around that. That's probably not exact. We're we're approximately 2,000 years into the new covenant. And I still got to convince people in the church as to what covenant we're under. It's kind of like frustrating. It's like we're we're at best a mixture. When Paul wrote to Timothy, he said, You need to rightly divide the word of truth. He's not talking about knowing Greek and Hebrew. He's talking about knowing which covenant you're under. Rightly dividing is the word of truth, is knowing whether it's truth in relationship to the old covenant or the new covenant. How many know Jesus came to fulfill, he didn't do away with, he fulfilled the law and the prophets. Every jot and every tittle was fulfilled in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then the book of Hebrews says that it was finished and it was now fading away. How many know it was fading away? just like it was fading away uh, for several years. In other words, there there was two covenants in operation. Read the book of Acts. On Mount Sinai, they've got, got, uh, on on the mountain of Moriah, they've got the tabernacle of Moses, or or uh, let me put it, they've got the temple still in operation. They're still killing lambs. They're still baking bread. They're still lighting candles. they still got a Levitical priesthood system. But Peter stood up and said in Acts chapter 15, but what's happening here with God pouring out the Holy Ghost on the uh, Jews and the Gentiles is the fulfillment of the tabernacle of Moses that the prophet prophesied and said to this degree, the words of the prophet that I'll return again to build the tabernacle of David, which is broken down so that everybody can have access to God, both Jew and Gentile. But how many know while the tabernacle of, 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 while the tabernacle of David was in operation, which was actually 40 years as well, the temple is still in operation in other words we got some folk who've come out from underneath of that system and some still not knowing what needs to go what needs to say how would you like to been in the jerusalem council when they're trying to decide do we still need to circumcise these guys how'd you like to have been the guy that was three days late to that meeting It was fading away. And the persecution that was coming on the apostles is because it looked like they're preaching a message diametrically opposed to the religious activities they've done for 1,500 years. But They're telling people, you don't need to offer the sacrifices anymore. And can I tell you that even the warnings, there's so much to say. But even the warnings uh, uh, that Paul was giving to the Hebrews when he's saying to them, Listen, he said, once you have tasted, he said, therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrines of Christ, faith towards God and of baptisms and of laying on of hands. Let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation. And then he says, but if you sin willfully, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sin and and that if you do... You are doing despite to the Spirit of grace, and you are saying that the blood of the covenant is an unholy thing, and you are doing despite to the Spirit of grace. Now, that text has been used to terrify people. Help me, Holy Ghost. I have several psychiatrists that get product from me. And one of the main things several psychiatrists said to me was, she said to me, uh, she said, what you're teaching will cure my patients, because ninety some percent of the people that are in my, uh, are in my asylums think they've either blasphemed the Holy Ghost or they've committed the unpardonable sin. They're all quote scriptures. They're all re- she said, but what you teach about this will help my patience. Because well, I can remember growing up, and they said, if you sin willfully, once you've been enlightened, there remains no more sacrifice for sin. Can we talk a minute? How many of you sinned since you've been saved? Let me see your hand. How many of you plotted it, planned it, carried out, and enjoyed it? I almost want to put an emoji up on the screen. If that's what that text means, I would say let's close in prayer and go home because we're all lost. But it wouldn't do no good to close in prayer. The context of that is the laying on of hands is not talking about what we do to see people get healed. I believe in that. I believe there's other texts for that. It's not talking about baptisms like we do when we get people saved and then we baptize them in water. That's not the text for it. There's other texts for that. This Hebrew 6 text is when you lay your hands on the heads of animals and confess your sin over them. And the word for baptisms here has to do with the mikvahs or the diver's washings and the old ceremonial rules of the diver's washings that they were going through. What he's saying is, if you have, he said, let's move on from... Come on, bringing our animals every week. We're trying to see stuff through a 21st century lens. And he's talking about, let's go on to perfection. The word perfection there is not a verb. It's not a doing thing. The word perfection there is a noun. It's something that's already done. How many know we need to go into the perfect one? And I could teach all day just on that. But when he says, if you sin willfully, he's talking to Hebrews who are wanting to go back to Judaism. And the whole book of Hebrews is what's better about the new covenant that's better than the old. He's better than Levi. He's better than Joshua. He's better than Moses. There's a better promised land. There's better blood. There's better sacrifices. There's a better tabernacle. There's a better city. There's a better faith. Everything about it's better. That's what the book of Hebrews is trying to tell these Hebrews, that Paul is admonishing them as he comes to the end of the book of Hebrews and reiterates the Hebrews 6 passage, saying "Certain fearful is looking for a fire indignation that's about to come because if you sin willfully, there remains no more sacrifice for sin. What he was saying to them, if you sin willfully, the word sin here means to miss the mark. How many of the mark changed in the new covenant? The mark that we were trying to hit under the old covenant was keeping all the rules of the old covenant, except not even Moses made that. The mark in the new covenant is the image of the stature, of the fullness of Christ. And it is him who is the mark. But how I many know if you sin willfully? What he's saying to these Hebrews is if you miss the mark on purpose and you take your lamb back to the tabernacle, once you've tasted the power Of the age to come, King James calls it the world to come. Again, it was the age to come. The age that was fading was the old covenant age. The age to come was the birthing of the new covenant age. And it was coming like a woman in travail. Birth pains were everywhere of God's new world coming on the scene. And when he began to say, if you sin willfully, in other words, if you do on purpose go back to Judaism, there remains no more sacrifice for sin. In other words, what he's saying is, There's not another lamb coming. He's not telling you you're forever lost. He's saying, listen, folks, if you go back to that and you offer the blood of a bull, and I know folk are all up in the air right now about a red heifer. I can tell you, just like I said in the seminar, the only thing uh, that excites me about a red heifer is a prime rib about that thick. If you cook it just right, I'll put it in the Feast of Tabernacles. (laughs) I cannot believe that Christians would even be drawn away by the thought of the possibility of something that would insult the spirit of grace and the blood of Jesus because if you think there's any power in the blood of a bull or a goat you have somehow missed the power of the blood of Jesus that was a once for all sacrifice that there is no other name given under heaven whereby men must be saved so it is in this context that Peter is saying to them listen in the last days scoffers are going to come he's not talking about the the last days of this age, he was talking to his contemporaries who were saying, it looks like everything's continuing. They're still lighting candles. They're still baking bread. They're still killing animals. It looks like everything continues they were. And he tells you why God was delaying was because he's not willing that any would perish, but that they would come, come on somebody, to repentance. And then he begins to talk about the elements would melt with a fervent heat and that there would come a fire and that there would be a passing away of an old heaven and an old earth and there would come on the scene a new heaven and a new earth. Now let me just talk to you a little bit about Bible context stuff. If you go back through the Scriptures and you start looking at this terminology, it's one of the places, I, I, I have it in my notes, uh, I, I'll read it for you, I don't know if they can bring it up quickly or not, but in... Uh, I believe it is Isaiah. Let me see if I got the passage. Isaiah 51 verses 12 through 16 says, I, even I am he that comforteth you, who, who art thou that thou shouldest be afraid of man that shall die and of the son of man which shall be made as grass. And forget us, the Lord thy Maker and has stretched forth the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth and has feared continually every day because of the fury of the oppressor as if he were ready to destroy. And where is the fury of the oppressor? The captive exile hasteneth that he may be loose, that he may not die in the pit, nor that his bread should fail. But I am the Lord your God that divides the sea, whose ways reward the Lord of Hosts is his name. And I have put my words in your mouth, and I have covered you in the shadow of mine hand, that I might plant the heavens and lay the foundation of the earth and say to Zion, you are my people. When God made covenant with Israel and called them Zion, that is when he laid the foundations of the earth and stretched out the heavens. When we think about heaven and earth, let me say it like this. Boy, I wish I had two more days, first of all. Let me just say it like this. God put His image in every tabernacle. How many of the temples, all of the tabernacles are temples? God said, let them build me a house so that I can dwell among them. That would be the place where God and man can meet together. I'm not doing this justice this morning yet. How many know that when they created the temple, it was a pattern of the heavens? So, you know, I mean, I could literally take the tabernacle of Moses and show you that every piece of furniture in the tabernacle is a picture of the redemptive work of Christ, and every piece of furniture is arranged at a bleeding spot where Jesus bled. And it is a revelation of God's redemptive work from the outer court to the inner court, and it was where God would meet with man. When God came down to meet with Israel or Jacob, when he wrestled with the angel... He said he saw the angels of God ascend and descend on the Son of Man. And there was a ladder let down and he said this is none other than the house of God and this is Bethel. This is where heaven and earth come together. How many know in the beginning when God created man in his image and in his likeness, how many know that man was made from the dust of the ground? And I can see God when he'd lean over the balconies of glory and begin to shape in the earth his image. He's putting his image in the earth because he's building a temple. His temple was the whole earth. And how many know the last thing he would put in his temple was a man in his image and in his likeness? Come on somebody, so that the earth could be filled with the glory of the Lord. And how many know Genesis 1 verse 6, go back and watch these videos, but Genesis 1 verse 6 says that where the above water was separated from the beneath water, what was in between them is called the firmament. How many know that the above water hangs in what we call clouds? The beneath water is in ocean, seas, and ponds. And the firmament was what divided the above water from the beneath water. So would you agree with me that we are standing in the firmament? I needed a verbal amen. In Genesis 1, 6, and God called the firmament where we're standing right now, heaven. Capital H-E-A-V-E-N. What are you saying? I'm saying heaven was here before Adam released death and hell on the planet. And can I tell you that that man was the interface that brought both of them together? I mean, when God leaned over the balconies of glory like the hand of a great potter, he started to shape his image and likeness into a man. He might have done it like a snow angel. He might have just made a divine impression. But I could see Michael look over at Gabriel and say, yeah, but he's out of the earth and he's earthy. But God said, I'm not finished yet. And about that moment, he he fills his lungs full of the breath of spirit substance, comes down on Adam, a man of dust, and breathes into him the breath of life. And man becomes a living soul. And heaven and earth found their interface. God and man came together, the visible and the invisible, heaven and earth, were located in the man so that Adam could walk with God and no angels by their name at the same time operate kingdom business in the earth and say, if that's a giraffe, God said, that's a giraffe. If he called it a hippopotamus, it was a hippopotamus. Sometimes I don't know how much we realize our words are powerful. What are you going to call it, Adam? I'm going to call him the righteousness of God. The first Adam, come on, did it out of rebellion. I'm headed somewhere this morning. This is going to be deep. I can see when God leans over the balconies of glory and and makes that, he is to the blue ball called earth what God was to the invisible realm called heaven. He was God's vice regent in the earth. And he was blessed to be a blessing, to be fruitful, to multiply, to replenish and have dominion. God has never changed his mind about plan A. See, what's he want for my life? He wants you to be fruitful, multiply, replenish, have dominion. Somebody's going to believe this. That was the connector in heaven and earth was all together. Isn't it amazing that it starts in the garden? In Genesis, it ends in a garden in Revelation. Adam has a garden turns it into a graveyard. Jesus takes a graveyard, turns it into a garden. Adam has access to a tree of life. He chooses a tree of death. Jesus chooses a tree of death, turns it into a tree of life. Adam sins, he's cursed. You will earn your bread by the sweat of your brow and the earth will bring forth thorns and thistles. Jesus wears a crown of thorns to redeem you from that curse. He prays until he sweats. He sweats until he bleeds because he knows if he sweats until he bleeds and one drop of blood ever touches a cursed earth, it'll put the curse in reverse that says you've got to earn your bread. Somebody ought to get happy with me. Adam is chased out of the garden and there's two angels put at the east of the garden to keep the way of the tree of life. Jesus gets up out of a grave in a garden and Mary walks up to him and said, Sir, I thought you were the gardener. He, in fact, was the gardener. He just put him back in the finished work. Redemption and God's new creation by the resurrection of the dead is now underway. And when Mary stooped down to look into the tomb of Jesus, there's an angel standing at the head and one at the foot. It's the same two angels he put at the east of the garden to keep the way of the tree of life. They're saying, this is the way, walk ye in it. There's a blood sprinkled mercy seat. The first Adam was about to lose that place. Heaven and earth were about to separate. I could see Eve take the, the apple. And we know it was not a literal apple but, stay with apple, but stay with me. The Scripture said that Eve was deceived, but Adam was not deceived. I think some of it was Adam's thinking, hey, I've been commissioned to leave and cleave. And I can't leave and cleave. <laughs> and I can see God look over at the sun. This conversation go on in the divine trinity. I can see Jesus say to the Father, He's going to leave us. He's going to leave us. He's going to intentionally eat of that tree that I told him not to. I can see God the Father look back at the Son and say, How do you know he's going to leave us? Jesus says, It's because it's what I would do. But the first Adam is going to leave and get his wife out of rebellion. But the last Adam is going to leave out of obedience and go get his bride. And he's going to leave and cleave. Come on, somebody. And if I got enough time this morning, I'm going to tell you, you ain't going to get married. You're already married to him. That on Calvary's tree, when the spear of a Roman soldier opened the side of Jesus, it was a repeat of what happened in Eden's mystic garden when God opened the side of Adam and brought to him a woman. When the blood and water spilled out of the side of Jesus on Calvary's tree, the blood and water splashed on a woman underneath of the cross that was symbolic of, come on, he brought us, Ephesians 5 said, he has presented us to himself not having spot, wrinkle, blemish, or any such thing. How many know the new covenant is your marriage certificate? You're the bride of Christ you're already married to him come on somebody you've got the master card don't leave home without it Amen. The new covenant is your marriage certificate. And and Romans 7 tells us that we're not going to get married. That's not some future event. Romans 7 said we should be married to him, even to him who was raised from the dead, that we could bring forth fruit to God. And I say it like this, the new covenant is your marriage certificate. And that's the reason people don't get intimate is because they don't know they're married to him. Because if there's no wed, there's no bed. Come on, somebody. No covenant, no loving it. That sounds like a bumper sticker, but I believe it's still good preaching. Come on somebody. You want you want a divine romance? Read the Song of Solomon. But I'm after something here this morning because God's heaven and earth was in the man in the beginning. But two or four thousand years later, when God was about to reconnect the interface between the heavens and the earth, He would, hallelujah, He would touch a girl by the name of Mary and place in her womb, come on, the human and the divine would come together, the visible and the invisible, the heavenly and the earthly would come together one more time in God's, his, His patterned Son, In his son Jesus, God would connect both heaven and earth, that he would be the place that could reach up and grab a hold of God on Calvary's tree with one hand, reach down and grab the human family with the other, and bring them together at the cross where it vertically and horizontally connects and says, I'm going to reconnect the interface. I'm going to bring heaven and earth together, and I'm going to do it in a new temple. That's why he would say, in the opening of John 1, there's so much I could preach. John 1 is a repeat of Genesis. John 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and all things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. In Genesis 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the great deep. In other words, Jesus was a repeat of the Genesis thing. In him all things are held together. He is the place where heaven and earth met together, where God was bringing back together, reconciling both which was in heaven, the book of Ephesians, and that which is in the earth. He's bringing it together. I'm going to just say it like this, to create a new heaven and a new earth, wherein dwells righteousness. And in John 1, at the end of the chapter, he calls Nathaniel. And he, when he calls Nathaniel, he says to him, I saw you when you were under the fig tree. And Nathaniel says, or Jesus, he marvels. And Jesus looks at him and says, "Nathaniel, don't marvel that I saw you under the fig tree. Because from henceforth, you're going to see the angels of God ascend and descend on the Son of Man. What he's saying is, at, at Bethel, where Jacob wrestled with the angel, he said, this is the house of God and this is none other than the gate of heaven because he saw angels of God ascend and descend at Bethel. But when Jesus stands up and says you're going to see the son of you're going to see the angels of God ascend and descend on the son of man what he's saying to them is I am the house of God. And in that same chapter he walks into the temple and says destroy this temple And in three days, I'm going to raise this bad boy up again. He's talking about moving out of that old box where we isolate this God and keep him over there somewhere where we meet with him on Sunday. And he's bringing him to a larger audience. And then Paul grabs it and says, what do you not know? You are the temple of the Holy Ghost. Come on, somebody. Hallelujah. You are the temple. You are where heaven and earth meet together. You are the interface. Oh, I could preach. I I don't know what's on me this morning. Hallelujah. But I like what Malachi says. I'm going to open you. I'm going to open you, windows of heaven. Lift up your heads, oh ye gates. Come on, we got a room full of windows and gates. You're looking for the spout where the glory comes out, but you're sitting right beside of one of them. Because I'm going to open you up. I'm going to pour you out a blessing. We come to church with this, here's my cup, Lord. I lift it up, and I'm always coming to need-based, man-centered fill my cup. When I need to start coming and saying, listen, even after I get filled back up, I'm going to leave here, but I'm going to encounter some folk when I get out there that's going to need me to open some windows and doors where heaven and earth can start to invade. Come on. Some of us need heaven to invade our families. We need them to invade our finances. We need them to invade our government. We need them to invade our schools. We need some windows. Who I could preach all day on that because it was four lepers set at the entering into the gate when there was a famine in the land and stuff was bad. But four of them, four guys with nothing to lose, got up and said, Hallelujah. And they were mocking them said, If God would make windows in heaven, could this thing be? Because the prophet prophesied that tomorrow about this time, there is going to be abundance. There's going to be a change. Something's going to happen. He was preaching good news when it didn't look like good news. Uh, he was preaching favor when it didn't look like favor. Sounded like something Jesus would do in his first public... Message in the middle of Roman occupation with chaos everywhere. He stood up and said, The Spirit of the Lord God's on me. Because He's just sent me to declare the year of the favor of our God. He preached favor in the middle of crises. Because you don't change stuff crying doom and despair, and the sky is falling. You don't get dead bones to rattle by telling them how dead they are. And how dry they are, you get dead burns to rise by prophesying and releasing the wind. You get results by prophesying live. If you think I'm crazy and out of my mind, leave me alone. I'm not out of my mind, I'm out of yours. But I'm trying to get you in mind because I believe it's the mind of Christ. For right now is that heaven and earth come together in a people and God opens some doors and windows and heaven and earth begin to come. Matthew 5 is to me a nail in the coffin to many of my grace friends because I've been a grace preacher for a number of years. Matthew 5 said, but not one jot or tittle of the law will pass. He said, heaven and earth will pass away before one jot or one tittle of the law is uh, fails. Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets so that every jot and tittle of the law was passing away. And a new heaven and a new earth came on the scene. A new covenant, a new temple, a new bride, a new Jerusalem, a new day, a new covenant. Come on, somebody. His mercies are new every morning with new tongues. Everything being made. New. Am I making sense this morning? Let, let, me, let me catch this verse for you. Revelation, let me, I'm going to jump out of context. Revelation chapter 21, verse 1, 2, and 3. I think if you could get it for me, possibly, in the Message Bible. I think, see, the book of Revelation begins. Let me look what time it is. Oh, we're doing good. The book of Revelation begins by saying, come and see, come and see, come and see. Come and see. One of the things he says in the beginning is, to him who overcomes, I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down from God out of heaven. So he says to him that overcomes, I'm going to write upon him the name of the city of my God, and he leaves no question about it, which is New Jerusalem. Let me submit this thought to you. New Jerusalem is not a place. It's a people. It is the, I'll show you in just a few moments in Revelation. It is the bride, the lamb's wife. And he'll use three different icons to describe that. So if you don't get one of them, you can get the other one. But he's saying, come and see, come and see, come and see. And so then he opens the latter part of the book of Revelation. And he starts saying, and I saw, and I saw. And I saw, and I hope, as this seminar, which is, I promise you, I've skimmed the surface in. Comes to an end that you will stand and say, and I saw. I saw, I saw some stuff I didn't see before. What did you see, John? Revelation 21, verse number, can you bring that up for me? Verse number one, uh, maybe through three. uh, She's getting it. And I saw heaven and earth gone. The first heaven gone, the first earth gone. Gone the sea, and I I saw Holy Jerusalem, new Korea descending resplendent out of heaven as a as ready for God as a bride for her husband, and I heard a voice thunder from the throne: "Look, look! God has moved into the neighborhood, making His home with men. They're His people. He's their God. He'll wipe every tear from their eyes. Death gone." For good, tears gone, crying gone, pain gone, all the first order of things gone. The throne continued. Look, I am making everything new. Write it all down. Each word dependable and accurate. Now let me stop here for a moment. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and there was no more sea. If you ask any Hebrew Jewish boy, even today, when I say to you, heaven and earth, what do you think of? they will say, our temple and our covenant. Because Josephus writes concerning the temple, and he said it was as it were the universal gate of heaven. It was, how many of you, I retract with what I've said, the temples was the place where God met with men. But when he's saying, gone the first heaven, gone the first earth, there was no more sea. He's talking not about an ocean drying up, when he says there was no more sea. He's talking about the brazen sea or the sea of glass. Help me, Holy Ghost. That was in the tabernacle of Moses, and Solomon specifically called it the sea of glass. What he's saying is, this temple and this heaven and this earth is about to pass away. Now, let me tell you that when Peter is writing here and he's saying The elements are about to melt with a fervent heat, and we, according to his promise, are looking for a new heaven and a new earth. And we are hasting, too. In other words, we are saying, come on, man. He's not talking about a cosmic collapse. He was talking about what Jesus had prophesied, that within that generation, that temple would be destroyed. And that covenant would be moved off of the scene. And when it did, there would come a new heaven and a new earth and a new covenant and a new tabernacle and a new Jerusalem. I'm going to show you some more scripture. What really caught my attention, and especially the book of Peter's, is when he said the elements would melt with their fervent heat. Bring my Galatians text up. Help me, Holy Ghost. We're covering pretty good this morning. Hallelujah. I know this is probably some real mind-shaking stuff to some of you, but I hope you're hearing what I'm saying this morning. Am I communicating all right? You don't have to agree with me, but you just have to listen to what I have to say. Uh, Galatians 4 verses 1 through 2. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differs nothing from a servant, though he be Lord of all, but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed unto the fathers. Even so, we When we were children, we're in bondage. Do you see this next phrase? Under the elements, the elements of the world. You see this word elements? Same Greek word Peter's using when he says the elements are about to melt with the fervent heat. He's not talking about a nuclear exchange. Well, I thought I'd get a little bit more (laughs) happy response about that. He's not talking about something out in the distant future... When we watch the news and think, oh, this is prophecy coming to pass. This was written to people that would be relevant to Peter writing to them. He's telling them the elements are about to melt with the fervent heat. What elements specifically? This is the Greek word stoichion. And it is only ever used to describe the law of Moses. Because he's talking about when we were children, we were under the elementary things, touch not, taste not hand or not the elementary things of the law. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth a son, made of a woman made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of the Son into your hearts, crying, I'll a father, wherefore you're no more a servant but a son, and if a son then an heir of God through Christ. Howbeit then when you knew not God, you did service unto them which by nature are no gods, but now after that you have known God, or rather are known of God, how turn you again to the weekend, see this word, the weekend beggarly elements, whereunto you desire again to be in bondage, you observe days, months, times, and years. I'm submitting to you that what he's saying here, the elements that were about to melt, was not some futuristic atomic change, but it was the collapse of this old covenant system, that would literally be burnt to the ground the temple would be destroyed the centerpiece of judaism and animal sacrifice would never be possible to go back and even the lineage of the levitical priesthood would be destroyed so there's no genealogical records so they could ever restore a restored temple because there's no genealogical records for a true Levitical priesthood. And even if there was, who would want to go back to a Levitical priesthood when Jesus is a priesthood after the order of Melchizedek? And if there's a change of priesthood, there must be a change of covenant, a change of the law. Come on, somebody. In other words, I'm trying to tell you, this ought to be incredibly good news, just a possibility that I could be right, that maybe we don't have hell on earth to look forward to, that this stuff ain't going to fall apart, that if we could get the church to function in her position, we might could even turn some stuff around right now in our generation. I'm preaching this not to be popular. I'm preaching it to leave my children and my grandchildren a future. Because if somebody, see, let me tell you something. I turned 65 Friday night. But when you get my age, you start thinking, I don't got time to preach cute little sermons anymore. I'm either going to tell you the truth or I'm going home. And I decided several years ago, I'm going to preach what I believe is true until nobody wants me to preach anymore. And you know what's been amazing? More doors have opened since I thought like that than they did, come on, when I was trying to be cute. But I believe my assignment is to begin to bring... I believe we are in something bigger than revival. I believe it's a great awakening. But the awakening is not a final push to get us ready to go. It's a final push to get us ready to take over. Because the earth does not belong to the devil and his crowd. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. It belongs to Mr. in business, Jesus Christ. It's in my copy of the will. Hallelujah. The reason we like the escape hatch is because it relieves us of any responsibility to engage in a harvest. When Jesus said in Matthew 13, the harvest is the end. King James of the world, every other translation says the harvest is the end of the age. He wasn't talking about the end of this age. He was talking about the end of that age. And he was talking about the tares would be gathered in bundles and burnt with an unquenchable fire. That's not something that's in your future. That's something that's behind you. That ought to be incredibly good news to somebody. When Jesus prophesied in Matthew 24 and said the tribulation, wars, rumors of wars, they'll deliver you up to be killed, earthquakes, uh, uh, you know, uh, pestilence, all those things. He declared to them, all of this will happen before this generation passes away. That ought to be good news to you that maybe you don't have seven years of hell on earth to look forward to. Go back and watch the videos. Hallelujah. I don't know why people wouldn't get excited about good news. Now, let me go on down. Let, let's jump down into Galatians. Bring it up with a part from t- uh, 21 on in the Amplified Bible. This is too powerful to me. I, I got a few more scriptures. Then i get out your road. Then you can go back to normal. You can go, Shh, glad that guy's gone. No. Let me tell you, man, this has given me back my life. It's given me back my Peace taking the fear out from me. It's giving me hope for the future of my kids and my grandkids. It tells me, hallelujah, that maybe there is a purpose. Maybe the dreams God gave to us and our young people are God dreams. Maybe we're supposed to be doing something. Maybe we should build the buildings. Maybe we should, come on. Plant the vineyards. Hallelujah. Maybe some of this doom stuff was not talking about this age. It was talking about that age. And it went and it came up and an old heaven and an old earth passed away. And a new one came on the scene. I am living in a new heaven and a new earth. Now, I grant you that it's not everything it's going to be because there's an ongoing increase. Because Revelation 21 and 22 are both past, present, and future. It is the universal church of Jesus Christ throughout all generations that is called to stand back and say the Spirit and the Bride are saying, Come, and if you're thirsty, come and drink. Because if you'll get a drink of this water, it'll wipe all tears from your eyes. Well, where's this water coming from, Dr. House? It's coming from a throne and a lamb in the middle of a throne in a temple has no wormwood in it. Everything it touches lives. It produces a tree that's on both sides of the river, a tree of life. Jesus then begins to declare that you and I are the temple of the Holy Ghost and out of your belly shall flow. Rivers. Of living water what comes out of your mouth when you open it up is it wormwood and bitterness and frogs and unclean spirits or is it i got some words of life for you to tell you hallelujah that god is not mad with you he's not against you he's for you that if you can come and drink of the water without cost come on it'll remove everything that had to do with the curse and you'll be able to live in a whole new world let me tell you, I'm not just going to the kingdom. The moment I got saved, I got translated out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of his dear son. I'm right now a citizen. Hallelujah. Well, hallelujah. Let's read this. Let me look at the time. Galatians 4.21. Tell me, you who are bent on being under the law. This is Galatians 4.21, same context of the elements that I talked about. Tell me, you who are bent on being under the law. we not listen to what the law really says? What is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondmaid and one by the free woman, that whereas the child of the slave woman was born according to the flesh and had an ordinary birth, the son of the free woman was born in fulfillment of the promise. Now all this is an allegory. These two women represent two covenants. One covenant originated from Mount Sinai where the law was given and bears children destined for slavery. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar is and stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia, and she corresponds and belongs in the same category with the present Jerusalem. For she is in bondage together with her children. I didn't say that. The Scripture did. Well, let me try it over here. If I had a driver, I'd say, go get the car ready. He said that the Jerusalem, which now is, is Hagar, Mount Sinai. It's Old Covenant Jerusalem. Not my opinion. It's what your Bible says. But the Jerusalem above, the Messianic kingdom of Christ is free, and she is our mother. For what is written in the Scripture, Rejoice, O barren woman who has not given birth to children. Break forth into a joyful shout, you who are not feeling birth pains." For the desolate woman has many more children than she who has a husband. He's quoting Isaiah 54. But we, brethren, are children not by physical descent, as was Ishmael, but like Isaac, born in virtue of the promise. How many of you are born again? How many of you have been born a supernatural birth? Then you're in, come on, you're in the, you're in the right, you're, you're right now part of the messianic kingdom of Christ. You're a part of the Jerusalem which is above. Right now. Touch your neighbor and say now. Say it again, now. See, a procrastinator somebody who won't take now for an answer. And just as, just as, verse 29, but yet just as at that time the child of the ordinary birth, born according to the flesh, despised and persecuted him who was born remarkably, according to the promise and the working of the Holy Spirit, So it is now also, but what does the Scripture say? Cast out and send away the slave woman and her son. For never shall the son of the slave woman be heir and share the inheritance with the son of the free woman. So, brethren, we who are born again are not children of the slave woman, the natural, but of the free. In other words, there's not an alternative option. There's only one name given under heaven, whereby men must be saved. And that's at the name of Jesus. And he is the true vine, and he is the right. Come on, somebody. And we are a part of that heavenly Jerusalem. We are a part of that new heaven and new earth and that new Jerusalem. Hebrews 12, verse 18. I'm I'm getting close to finishing. Are you all right still? Let me take your pulse. For you have not come to the mountain that might be touched and that burned with fire, and to blackness and darkness and tempt us and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, so that those who heard it begged that the words should not be spoken to them anymore. For they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot through with an arrow. So terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly am afraid and trembling. How many know that was Mount Sinai? He says this, you did not come to that mountain. Here's the tragedy. That's the mountain we bring people to every Sunday morning across American churches is the mountain of fear, trembling, and a God who says, stay away. A God who says, if you touch this, I'm going to kill y'all. Good news, but you are not come to that mountain. Well, then what have we come to next verse? But you have come. You ain't marching there. It ain't some glad morning. It ain't in the sweet bye by. It ain't one of these days. But you have come to Mount Zion, and you've already come to the city of the living God into the heavenly Jerusalem, and you are already come to an innumerable company of angels. You've already come to the general assembly of the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, and you've come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, and you've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who speaks, for if they did not refuse him who speaks on earth... Much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth, but now once more he is promising, yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this this yet once more indicates the removal of the things that are being shaken, as of the things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. So when he declares this, he says, listen, you didn't come to Mount Sinai. You didn't come to blackness and darkness. You didn't come to a God who says go away. you come to Mount Zion. You've come to the new covenant. You've come to the heavenly Jerusalem. You're already a part of the new Jerusalem. And then he begins to declare, don't refuse him who's talking to you from heaven. Speaking from earth, he's talking from Sinai. Talking from heaven, he's speaking concerning the new covenant. And he's telling these Hebrews in the first century, three and a half years before the destruction of Jerusalem, everything that can be shaken is going to be shaken. That's not a 2022 verse of Scripture. That is a scripture that firmly belongs to this audience. Does God still shake things? Of course he does. But what he's talking, the context here is, everything that can be shaken is gonna be shaken because I'm going to remove everything that doesn't belong in the kingdom of God, and that would be the entire old covenant. And then our God is a consuming fire. And I tell you that within three and a half years of Peter telling that and Paul declaring this, and as you watch them, right up their speech, I said, the judge is standing at the door in the book of James. The time is at hand. It is near. In other words, all these nearness revelation one, don't seal up the words of this prophecy because the time is at hand. It was written to seven churches that were really in Asia. The fact that these battles are fought with horses ought to tell you this is first century stuff relative to that time period. And can I tell you that within three and a half years, the elements melted, the stoichion, all that had to do with the trapping of all of that, everything that could be shaken was shaken, and God left a kingdom which cannot be removed. I submit to you this morning that when you got born again, You became part of a new heaven and a new earth. You became part of a tabernacle of God. Do you not know your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost? Look, look, God's moved in the neighborhood. He made his home with men. Can I tell you, you're the bride, the lamb's wife. You're already married to him. And if all three of those are true, then you are also the city of the living God. You're the capital city where the king dwells. And from this city set on a hill, that can't be hid. There's legislative authority that goes forth as we declare and speak the word that flows from heaven. It will come on. Hallelujah. You say, is this all there is? This is just the beginning. Come on, stand on your feet all over this room. What it does is puts it in the arena of what am I waiting on? Now, 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 let me say, because I know probably a lot of you have not been here, and let me, let me say to kind of make you feel a little bit at ease here. I'm, I'm, I'm not telling you there's not a heaven. I believe if, if I took my last breath today, in the next one, I would wake up in the presence of God in heaven. I believe all, all, all of that stuff. But I also believe God's intention is not just for me to get saved, lived in 70 or 80 years of misery, and then I can go there and be happy. The book of Deuteronomy says he wants to give us the days of heaven on earth. God wants to invade this planet with heaven, and you are part of that ongoing program. When he, when, when, right before Jesus ascended, he said to them. They asked him the question, "Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel?" He, at, they asked him that. He gave it the commission five times. He would say to them, "It's not for you to know the times of the seasons. That's given into the Father's hands." But the last time he gave the great commission is in Acts chapter one or two. I forget exactly which one. He's about to ascend and he says, they said, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus looks at that audience and this is, he answers them this time, but this is how he answers them. He says, they said to him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? When he looks at him, he says, but you will receive power after the Holy Ghost comes on you. Lord, will you restore the kingdom to Israel? but you will receive power after the Holy Ghost comes on you and you shall be witnesses to me in Judea, Jerusalem, utter part of the earth. Come on, lift your hands all over this room because I'm speaking some stuff prophetically. You will receive power. Come on, what I'm talking about orchestrating is not through social programs or political powers. I'm talking about what happens through the power of the Holy Ghost because every time you lay hands on the sick, cast out a devil, then the kingdom of God has come unto you. You will receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. The Holy Ghost is to do more than just give you a hookah and, and a jerk and a feel-good feeling. It's the power to execute kingdom business where you're at. You have authority as believers. You've got as much authority... As, as, as me standing here on this pulpit to speak to yourself, to speak over your body, to speak to your family, to speak to your loved ones. Because every time we do, the kingdom of God invades our world until all the earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What's the progressive thing look like? It looks like the wolf and the lamb will feed together. The lion and the bullock shall be as one. In other words, peace. They'll beat their swords and weapons into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. If a man dies at a hundred, he'll be considered an infant of days. I believe this gives us longevity. I believe it gives us health. I believe it gives us wealth. I believe it gives us power. Hallelujah. Because while there's a capital a few miles to our east... There's also a capital city in this room today. Look, look. God has moved in the neighborhood. Yeah, but Brother Howes, you don't know where I live. I live in the projects. And the reason you do is because God wants you to start a kingdom colony right there. Colonize it. Release the kingdom wherever you're at. Do it in your business. Do it in your family. See, this is stuff to me that's relevant. Every time I do stuff honestly, the kingdom has come. Every time I walk across the street and help my elderly neighbor, the kingdom has come. Every time I speak peace across my dinner table rather than hate and dispute, the kingdom has come to me. Are you? Every time I teach my children principles of how to do what's right and live in righteousness, because the kingdom of God is righteousness, it's justice. It's peace and it's joy and it's the only kingdom that does it right. Hallelujah. I'm glad the other one melted. I'm glad I don't live under no covenant paradigm. I'm glad I live. My address is New Jerusalem. And from there, come on, there's a street in the middle of this city. It's a golden street. Gold speaks of the nature of God. It's a street called straight. It's a highway called Holiness. Hallelujah. The typology is more than I can unpack in one day. I just hope that I've communicated well enough in this last couple of days to set you up for success. And all I ask you to do is consider the possibility that some of the stuff that I've shared might be correct. Go back and watch these videos, study them for yourself. I don't expect you to believe everything that I believe. It's been a lifelong journey for me uncovering these things. But I can tell you, there's a whole lot more people that believe it. that want to say they believe it because I meet behind the scenes with a lot of guys, I call them Nick at night, Nicodemus. They're rulers that don't want to be seen with me in public, but they know what I'm doing is right. I spoke with a leader of a major denomination not long ago. And he said, we believe what you're preaching is right. But if we preach it, the people will leave and split the church right down the middle. And one of his pastors said, then you want us to lie to the people. Somebody's going to preach the truth. Of course, we all think we are. I'm not trying to be facetious this morning. I respect what other people think. I just think here's the possibility. Consider it. This is victorious. This makes God so much bigger. And this is victorious eschatology.